0: Okay, Dr. David Kuh, I iHeal, thank you for talking to me. Um, we got in touch remotely through your daughter, Tiffany, and this is interesting because I did some research on you. And what you're trying to do by way of your um, medical platforms is what I understand is you're trying to democratize the delivery of medicine to as many people as possible. And what is also interesting for me is that you're trying to do this in Penang, where you and I both call our hometown. But let's start at the start, because when I looked at your biography, uh, doctor, doctor, uh, Dr. Doctor Koo, um, you are a cardiovascular and thoracic surgeon. So I think the chest cavity and all the contents within. But you were also, um, by the looks of it, quite a brilliant student, and you became a consultant quite early on in your career. So let's talk about your motivations behind uh, your medical career and, and why you chose medicine in the first place.
1: Okay, I think, I think for me to share, I will have to take you back to my early childhood days. Yeah? As you know, I'm from Penang. And actually, I'm from the remote part of Penang. You know, those days, the zone barat daya. I was born in Sungai Tiram by the pass. So if you look at, you know, in the 60s, when I was born 1963, that part of the time of Malaysia, Malaysian history and Penang in particular, that area of Penang was still in the backwood side. You know, that was even before the free trade zone. Of the medical of the electronics in my past. So therefore when I grew up in that kind of area, I remember, you know, those are the days when we we play barefooted, cycle barefooted. And I remember vividly an incident where we, we step on the broken bottle, glass bottle. Yeah. And then you have you know your, your leg bleeding over here. And of course my brother, you know, of high school, take me to the nearest health health clinic in those days. You know? And I still recall, I remember there was this guy, you know, standing there, dressed all in white. This is a type of guy that we call to be known as the, at they, they, that time they called him the H.A., like, hospital assistant. Of course, being young as we were that I thought that was a doctor. You know, there we are, no calling doctor, doctor, no pains, bleeding, and of course we got treated. So that was a kind of healthcare facility I was exposed to when I was growing up. Because after that, I went to town to study in School and of course, then I was exposed to a more, you know, or more advanced form of climate uh, movement. So from that time onwards, I already knew uh, this kind of, kind of work is something I want to do. But it kind of haunted me that, you know, why is healthcare still one area so good, the other area so backward? Yet, we are only about, now of course, you go by car, about half an hour away. Of course, at that time you go by bus, it's a good 45 minutes one hour. So that kind of stayed in my back of my head, you know, that if I were, I had a chance to be a doctor. Of course, I was also born at home. Those days we have this be done, you know, the midwives that come to the home. And I remember, of course I can't remember my birth, but I remember an incident when my mom had a miscarriage. You know, I was young, we were young, we think, oh, so much blood. And again, was responded to. Wife and of course they the you know, ambulance and take us to the hospital. So all these things vividly, you know, the memory that stays with me and as I had a chance to become a doctor, we would be able to have a chance to serve society in a different manner. We would then hopefully try to, to bring it to at least make it almost all equal. So of course in the modern time today, that is what they call the democratization of healthcare. So, I guess that seed was planted very early on as well. Not planted at the time when I never. And, you know, at that time, of course, when I look at it, now I think back, maybe that was when that whole idea came about.
0: Yeah. So, um, you set up your private practice in 2000, which I think made you. Quite young, maybe thirty-seven. Mid your mid-thirties at the time, um, I think. I mean, personally speaking, it, for people who study medicine, right, and for people who become doctors, there's almost a, a threshold of moral uh, service to the nation because you are at the end of the day a, a doctor, or to people uh, generally, not the country, but you you are able to save lives, which makes you one of very few people in the world who can do that. I mean, firefighters can do that, police can do that, army can do that, doctors can do that without violent means, and this makes you a very rare kind. But at the same time, because we we spend a lot of money, our parents spend a lot of money on our university education, and it costs a lot of money to become a doctor, even more when you become a consultant uh, surgeon such as yourself, uh, the need to pay off that debt becomes um, very, very important. So, from that perspective, um, uh, Doctor Ku, how do you square that with with what you're doing in in terms of you know being a doctorpreneur?
1: Well, I, I, you know, I, I look at things this way, uh, because if I look at you know why a person needs to change their place of work or even the the scope of practice, I often look to the root cause. Yeah. So in that context, I'm actually fortunate. You know, I graduated as a doctor relatively late because I was 26 years old when I graduated. Of course, at that time, because we studied locally, we went through the STPM and then get into six years, UKM or six years of medical school. So obviously, we graduate a bit later as compared to those of people like today. Like My daughter, she graduated as a doctor and she was only 23 years old. So then obviously, I had to make up for time. And luckily, of course, I passed my fellowship with the Royal College of Surgeons early. By the time I was 29 before 30, I was ready a fully qualified surgeon. So in that context, I made up for that delay in the initial undergraduate years. And then, of course, very quickly, I went to be trained as a cardiovascular and thoracic surgeon at IGN and then went to the male clinic. So in the context of whether I've served enough time, I think certainly, yes, I spent 11 years in government practice. Yeah, and partly because I, I advanced very quickly and become a surgeon very quickly. And the motivation for me to, to really go into private, in contrast to, or contrary to what the people popular believe that we are actually going to private practice perhaps even earn a living. That wasn't my motivation at all. Yeah, because when I was exposed to the American system, when I was at a Mayo Clinic, you know, Mayo Clinic is a hospital that is more than hundred years old. And this hospital was located in a very remote place in the united states and when i i went there it's always i remember when i wrote my personal statement of professional goals yeah of course all american institutions wanted to write all this before they even want to admit it. so i remember i wrote in my opening sentence to cross the widest ocean to scale the highest mountains, to be the best that i can be that is the belief values and values of how i need therefore for me going to mayo clinic was or one, not the need. So similarly, I already had that mindset in me. So of course I, I was in IGN when I first started training and went to Mayo and came back to IGN. Then of course when I, I go back to the system, suddenly I felt that I don't belong anymore. You know, I came back full of ideas and wanting to be perhaps innovative in doing things. But I came back to my place of before and suddenly made me realize that, hey, you know, this so-called uh, enthusiasm can be mistaken as perhaps so-called aggression so perhaps i was thinking maybe it's time for me you know to find my own my own place and my own so-called turf and that's where when the thing beckons in hippo because at that time perak in year 2000 there was no heart surgery in perak so what attracted me to go out for practice was because i wanted to be the frontier person you know? i wanted to be the guy pioneering that. So I, I helped build up this heart unit in Ipoh Specialist Hospital in Perak. And then we all start the first heart surgery. I still remember when I first went to that hospital, I mean, some of the things that we use routinely in KL, in IGN, of course in the clinic, like simple monitoring of blood pressure through using a line into the artery, was also not being used in Ipoh, which is only two hours away from KL. So I felt then I made the right move because there I started to introduce the modernities. Yeah, of surgery to that place. And true enough, I think that was my main motivation to find my own turf, to build my own input of things that to make things better. And that was my motivation. Of course, if you happen to do well and earn a bit more money, that that is just the reward for that motivation. Not truly the reason for doing so.
0: Yeah, so I I guess it's that fine balance, right, Dr. Ku, in terms of... um, trying to help people, trying to help people with heart conditions, uh, chest conditions, and then also trying to profit from it as a commercial venture. Because, of course, all kinds of um, hospital, uh, all kinds of medical centers, there's a huge capital investment required. And there's a huge commitment to, to, to put that money into that equipment because it's got to pay for itself, right? Um, f- from, a, from a practitioner's perspective and also as a parent, talking to other parents with children who are intelligent enough to go to university and study medicine, right? Um, how do you navigate the fine line between saving lives essentially and, um, you know, paying your way in this very challenging world? How do you navigate that fine line?
1: I think the first important thing we've got to put in the right perspective As I see a lot of young people coming to me and asking me or parents asking me to mentor their kids who are contemplating a career in medicine. You know, I often begin by telling them, first of all, throw away all the, the misconceptions that you may have developed by watching movies like Grey's Anatomy or whatever movies that romanticize the life of a doctor. Because in reality, I often tell them being a doctor is not the job. It's a way of life. You cannot say after a certain time of the day, I switch off, I'm no longer a doctor. You've got to believe, you got to behave and think as a doctor throughout the period, ever since you become one. Because the very action you're going to take, the very value sets you're going to be developing, is all centric upon the fact that you are here for the reason to make people live better and longer lives. That's the whole idea of being a doctor. So that part must be clear from the point go. Because if you don't get get that clear, then the expectations will bear down on you. Expectations can be from your own self, from people around you, or even those who funded your education. So therefore, I always begin by, by bringing them down to earth and forget about the romanticized form of what doctors should be. And look at it as what you're here for. So that's being understood. The second thing, of course, we have to, to see and realize that, of course, everybody needs to earn a living. So therefore, I often tell them, obviously, in that context, you want to be the best you can be. You can choose to be a heart surgeon, you can choose to be a gynecologist, or even to be a forensic pathologist. But if you are good in it, you don't be afraid that you will not you'll be, you know, earning too little or be shortchanged. Because society, one way or the other, will pay for this expertise. Now if we get these two two parts of it right, then I think the pressure of what to do next once you qualified will be less. And this was exactly what I went through. Because I remember when I look at when I, you know, of course I entered medical school and after that, before I even graduated I started to think, what do I want to become? After that period of six years of training, this is when, even about on the third or fourth year, I already decided I wanted to be a heart surgeon. So much so that I did my elective in it, even when I was a student, which is funny for most students because they want to be going elective to do public health, just to have a rotation in the hospital, have a good time. But no, I chose to go into heart surgery and into a subspecialty because I wanted to see for myself what is real. And, you know, you roll back history a couple of years, then I remember I was watching this movie. I'm not sure you've watched that movie before, called The Doctor, William Hurt. And I often tell people to try and watch that movie. That movie is about this famous or rich, successful heart surgeon. I still remember he drove this big car, but he's got an attitude. He's got an attitude of arrogance. And then in the same hospital, we have an ENT surgeon who was humble, was often bullied by this, this domineering drug. So as the story unfolds, we have this surgeon needing a colonoscopy. Yeah? So he he need to have an exam. Rather, sorry, he need he had some some change of voice. So he needed to see the ENT surgeon, who then arranged for him to, to have a scope under anesthesia. But while he was in the in the ward and being sedated, he was mistaken to be the other surgeon and brought for a colonoscopy. And you can see that that funny part of that episode where he was trying to stop people and saying that he's the wrong guy. But no, they won't wheel him in despite his protest and did a colonoscopy. And in a way, it already showed the situation where, in that moment, he was humbled by the fact that he was just like another patient. And of course, as the story goes on, he was diagnosed with thyroid cancer and the ENT surgeon operated on him. And of course, that humbled him. In fact, that movie had a great impact on me when I was 10 so, You know, again, I already remembered my humble beginnings from that kampong that I came from, the kind of disparity in the healthcare services that I, I saw. And now a movie telling me right here in the United States, where the movie was from, we have a situation where this guy, all the big time surgeon that he is, humbled by the situation that when he becomes a patient. Yeah he actually will be subject to the same discrimination, the same lack of uh, attention to detail, perhaps given by the health personnel. So that show had an impact on me again, to further emphasize that. If I have a chance to be that kind of a doctor, humility is going to be one part. I'm going to try to follow. But granted, that is not an easy thing, because sometimes when you're put on the pedestal, sometimes people think that you are greater than the real life. This is when you lose your bearing. And this is indeed, you know, like in the context of prior practice, am I giving still the service? Well, I think I, when I left for prior practice to go into people's special So because I was starting a unit, I took it upon myself to first, I remember I told, I told my team at that time, first, we have to promise the people in this hospital that we can do it. Because at that moment, heart surgery was never performing before. And then I said, secondly, we have to prove to the community outside that we can do it. And finally, after we can do all of that, Believe me, somebody else is going to try and duplicate the second. And we are going to move ahead of the time and do better and do things that the person who next comes is not able to do. Not because competition is not good, but you must see a competition in a way that brings the best out of you. So in that context, I think going to prior practice actually brought the best out of me. It brought out my independence. It brought out my creativity. And it brought brought out the fact that we need to be very conscious of our costs. You know, yeah. be it in Malaysia or even in the United States, when I see you're practicing in the system that auto pays for itself, most doctors are not concerned about what the things you use. Yeah? What, when you can stitch a three-inch incision yeah, with one stitch, many a times I saw it where people were using two or three stitches. And this is very cold. The cost goes out the window. So sometimes being a practice may be a good thing because you are under pressure to perform. Yeah. You charge yourself too high. You Basically, charge yourself out of competition. Yeah. yeah? So, and so, of course, if you're not going to be profitable, you're going to get a bigger earful yeah. you know, from the team. That is
0: supporting. Yeah. So, if there's anything that last year taught us, uh, Dr. Ku, is that um, obviously um, nobody is spared the COVID, right? Uh, nobody saw doctors last year. Nobody saw any hospitals last year. Everybody was just staying at home, locked down, right? Um, do you think in this day and age, with medicine evolving the way it is, do you think the the prospect of the attraction of studying medicine is as strong as ever?
1: I think if we look from the from the context of, of COVID or rather epidemic or any this case pandemic for that matter, I think it really what it does is first it expo- it, it exposes the weaknesses of whatever systems we are we are trying to, to zoom in. So I think there are two areas we shall discuss. Here. First, look at the prospects of being a doctor. Yeah, I think if you look at at the the fact that pandemic causes people to stay home, obviously the immediate reflex action is to think, hey, the demand is going to be less. But truly, if you look at the full cost of why or the role of a doctor, then you realize that pandemic itself is, or rather, infectious disease itself is not the only realm that the doctors are going to be involved in. I think what it really exposes us to is, you know, when you look at the the number of deaths to the COVID. We found that there are people with certain risk factors that are more liable to die from it. And these are the ones with non-communicable chronic illnesses. And this very effect itself showcases that the realm of medicine is beyond just infection. It's also about reducing the number of risk factors that one has from contracting a non-communicable chronic illness like hypertension, diabetes, heart disease. And these are the ones that put a person at very high risk of dying from it. So in that itself, if you look beyond the immediate reflex, immediate reaction reactions, you say, wow, the demand is going to be less. Yes, if you look at the short term. But you look at the role of a doctor, where you're looking at prevention of disease, restoration of health, as well as maintenance of health, then I think the job scope is still the same. Yeah, yeah. It's just that we have to shift a little bit onto the role. Perhaps we are more now into preventive medicine. There will be less focus on curative medicine. So your, your mindset... Yeah, the mindset itself will have to change towards uh i mean again i always caution against this romanticizing the, the professional healthcare because a lot of people do not want to go into preventive health because it's non-glamorous it is linked to less income but perhaps if COVID itself shows you actually there's a lot of work there for those who want to do preventive yes, so I.
0: Is, I yeah, so I see that you're taking quite a proactive role in this whole vaccination program. You've teamed up with another, with a listed company called BioAlpha to, uh, to, li- to, de- to deliver vaccine programs. I think you're going with a, with a Chinese uh, Sinovac version for foreign workers in Malaysia. Um, why did you, was, that a, was it a business opportunity that you spotted that for? Um, was it more altruistic in nature? I mean, what is your mentality when you when you chose to go down this avenue?
1: Now, of course, there are, there are two reasons why we need to you know to dive straight into this this area of COVID itself. No, I mean, when COVID first hit, I being of course an operator of a small boutique medical center, uh, immediately we were, we felt the impact of it, like you mentioned earlier, people are not coming to doctors or hospitals. So therefore, I told myself, if I were to survive this this pandemic. I must, number one, be courageous. Number two, I must be resilient. Number three, I also told myself, I must continue to grow. And number four, we must look for alternative income. And with these four things that I know I must face, I immediately realized that we have to jump straight into facing the COVID itself. I can assure you as a doctor, as most doctors will say, when the COVID first came, in a way we are overwhelmed. You know, we are not sure the danger to ourselves, our family members, our community, and what role we could play. Because most of us are non-infectious disease specialists. We are specialists in different areas. So immediately we are taken aback. We have to sit down and we look. And at that moment, I, I woke up and said, we're going to face COVID directly. This is where we start into doing the COVID uh, testing. Today, we have more than 50,000 people. We have to face it of course when you face it you got to make sure i protect him and of course the second part of that obviously is to then go into uh, i mean if you cannot say we hope for COVID to stay forever there is there is not one of us hope for that to happen although you look at it if you are thinking from the context of earning a living yeah you can continue swapping and earn some money but this is not the money you want to earn and i, I very from a very early on for the team that we're going to keep the price as low as possible because if we will take advantage of this situation, that is not what we are, we are here for. So, we have to go into the next step of being involved actively in the vaccination process. Because I know, to be honest, to be able to vaccinate the whole of, of 70% of Malaysians and only the government agency doing it is going to be a fall order.
0: Yeah, yeah. No matter
1: how fast we can do it, there's only so many we can do in a
0: day. That's right. So, um, I
1: prepare ourselves to be able to involve.
0: Yeah, so I also saw that you've got um, quite grand plans to turn Penang into a medical hub in the region. I think you want to almost become like a supermarket for medical treatments that caters to every kind of like ailment and illness in the world, essentially. But, of course, centralized within one location in Penang. Um, it's, it's a big ask, right? It's a very ambitious plan. Um, in your mind though when when you want to roll out this model and and mind you as well I, I think you've also got plans to take it public and to go very big as big as possible around it right um is there is there a plan also maybe to democratize the delivery of medicine to make it almost like a almost like a a, a place that everybody can go to not just the wealthy but also the poor is there a plan for that because it's a it's a very different world we live in nowadays dr who
1: yeah, I think in this context, I was very much influenced by the, how Mayo Clinic came about and it's being run. Now Mayo Clinic on its own is a not-for-profit organization. And obviously over the years, more than hundred years, it has built a huge name for itself. So similarly when, you know, when actually it was the exposure at Mayo Clinic that kind of wanted to sit for what I want to do with the Penang Health and Tech City that I propose. Obviously we have to raise money to do such a project. And obviously when you raise money, there's expectations for return. Now, what I'm hoping to do is therefore be able to give a return, at the same time, be able to have the artistic uh, channel for them, whatever we are going to be doing. So my, my model is, obviously there will be, there must be many parts of this so-called composite picture, where some parts are able to generate the income and the profit to give a return to the investors. So that's why when I plan the Penang Health and Tech City, we have eight, you know, uh, hubs, things from healthcare to education to technology to entertainment you know to, to even e-sports as well as of course residences so some components can be the one that gives a high yield and the healthcare component may not necessarily be the one giving you a lot of yield as long as it's self-sustaining and with that we will then set up a foundation and this is a foundation that is going to help pay for those who are less able so therefore i always believe in the concept of i mean like if you look at our malaysian rojak, not every single food in that rojak is sweet some might be even sour like the mango that we put in right some the, like the pineapple maybe it's sweet some will be bland so i believe this is how we're going to make it work so that the whole dish like the rojak tastes nice so yeah. in this when i have a i see in that form some will be high yield of course some will be almost no you like the botanical garden. And, of course, the orchid greenhouse will be low yield, but it's more to complement the wholesomeness of the project. And some will be little yield, yeah, because you have to grow with the money. And ideally, if I could even make the healthcare component not-for-profit and the others to support it, that could be one model. So this is a hybrid of what I see at Mayo Clinic, and what we are trying to do This because this is a purely private enterprise. So we have to be able to give return to whatever investments that come.
0: Of course, of course, Um, we've got about four minutes left, uh, Dr. Koo. Let's talk about your work as a cardiovascular uh, thoracic surgeon, right? Um, Heart disease is one of the biggest killers in the world for everybody, male or female, uh, Caucasian or non-Caucasian Oriental, right? Um, What are the three things that people can do to reduce their risk of heart disease?
1: I think to answer that part, we have to first understand the risk factors for one having heart disease. Yeah? When we think about, talk about heart disease here, we're talking about coronary artery disease. That means blockages in the coronary arteries. There are five known risk factors that makes one to respond to this condition. Namely, diabetes. Yeah, Diabetes is one big risk because diabetes affects the blood vessel. It's a systemic illness. So when you have uncontrolled sugar, naturally the lining of the arteries get damaged and that itself can cause one to have blockages. Second is hybrid pressure, knowing that as blood rushes through the way the arteries, naturally, you have sheer stress and cause of And that brings to the point, the third risk factor, which is high cholesterol. And a lot of people say they read this report, especially WhatsApp messages, that, hey, cholesterol is not important. FDA says it's not important anymore. But I think if you look at heart disease, it's an interplay of many factors. It's when you have things like diabetes and hypertension, that already put your lining of the arteries under pressure, and you put in cholesterol, this certainly the risk is going to be magnified. So, cholesterol itself, especially the bad cholesterol itself, is a known risk factor for heart. Now, of course, the fourth risk factor is smoking. And again, this smoking is again aggravating the other risk factors that you already have. And this is where smoking itself also affects the lining. The thing itself affects the lining of the arteries. And finally, the fifth risk factor will be family history. And genetics play a very big role. In, that's why sometimes you see the whole family is affected. So these five risk factors, if I may repeat, hypertension, diabetes, high cholesterol, smoking, and family family history, will be the main thing to address if you want to reduce the incidence of heart disease. In fact, in Malaysia right now, every day about thirty-seven people die from heart disease, which is alarming. You know, every day. Of course, when we look at COVID, we alarm when we see the numbers. But you really look at it, the incidence of heart disease is not low in Malaysia. The mortality is also normal. So there is still the commonest killer in this country. So we truly have to address this alongside with addressing the infectious disease like malaria, like diabetes, like dengue, or like COVID. So heart disease itself actually is a major public health threat. So we have to truly understand these five risk factors and take steps to reduce them or eliminate them.
0: Okay, that's fantastic, Dr. Ku, Thank you for talking to me. Um, I think it's very enlightening that um, you have told me all that you've told me in terms of um, heart disease, risk factors, um, your plans for a medical hub in Penang, and you know, just navigating the fine line between public service and commercial interest. I think that's something which a lot of people who are, who are trying to grapple with that conundrum, whether or not they are practicing like practitioners or whether they're about to embark on an education in medicine. Um, thank you for your time. Good luck with the plan. Maybe we'll uh, discuss again when you become a full-blown um, you know, PLC owner and then it'll be a different paradigm again. So <laughs> thank you. Good luck and uh, speak to you soon, man. Take care. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Thank Ngu. you. here. All right, thank, thank you. you.
1: Bye-bye.